afternoon it's wednesday the 13th of may 2020 just after one o'clock welcome to uk column news your host today mike robinson myself brian gerrish and we're delighted to be joined by alex thompson bringing us eastern approaches from the netherlands well i've got to say mike that although a few of our viewers say the news we give is bad it is the real news and we're going to have to give more bad news because there's a recovery plan recovery plan uh, well there's, uh, there's they're calling it a plan <laughs> is, is it a plan here's their plan uh it was updated yesterday published uh, on monday afternoon of course uh, and of course this this uh desperate foe that we have to deal with requires a plan uh it's an unprecedented foe let's have a look at what they're saying here uh the government's aim at the center of this plan is apparently to return life as close to normal as possible for as many people as possible as fast and fairly as possible that should make you feel uh, no it doesn't carry good. on good uh, and uh, in a way that avoids a new epido uh, epidemic minimizes lives lost and maximizes health economic and social outcomes so they're claiming that uh, this plan is going to minimize lives lost well let's just remember what uh, neil ferguson said uh, in an email to um, one of our viewers probably 50 to 70 percent of the deaths are COVID and 30 to 50 are from people dying from other things because health healthcare is overloaded or people feel more reluctant to go to hospital well of course we know that healthcare wasn't overloaded uh, basically everybody else other than COVID nurses and doctors were uh, twiddling their thumbs not doing very much um, and so uh, 30 to 50 percent is what he's uh, admitting to uh, the latest office for national statistics numbers were out yesterday uh, and uh, well, we can see that the uh, peak has been has been passed in terms of overall mortality. Now, of course, that red line that's on the screen there, as we've mentioned before, um, is total mortality, not just COVID mortality. If we actually put the COVID numbers on that, uh, it doesn't look uh, quite so bad. However, the red shaded area, of course, are what we're calling lockdown deaths. This is this is the excess mortality that uh, Neil Ferguson talking about still around the 50% th mark, it looks like on, a bit, on an estimate. Um, but of course, that's assuming that the dotted line is actually COVID mortality. Uh, and as we've made the point before, the Italians, when they went back and look at, looked at their numbers, put a figure of 12% on the actual COVID mortality, 12% of the headline figure. So if we uh, change our graph to represent that, uh, then these become the lockdown deaths. Now, as we said in last week on uh, a recent program, uh, this isn't exactly accurate because, of course, we don't know exactly what the COVID numbers are in this country because there, there are deaths that are attributed to COVID. Uh, they weren't necessarily uh, caused by COVID. Um, so uh, that's, that's a bit speculative. The, the actual uh, result is probably somewhere in between the two dotted lines that we had on there. Nonetheless, the question that we're asking, we're going to continue to ask, and we think that all of you should be asking is, if there are 50,000 excess deaths in the UK, how many of them have been caused by the lockup? Now, Boris Johnson was uh, asked about this, about the excess deaths during Prime Minister's questions just a few minutes ago, um, and basically said, well, yes, we do recognise that some people have been afraid to go to hospital and to seek medical care for, for other uh, problems, you know, non-COVID related problems. Uh, we hope that they'll start to do that now and, and go and get the care that they need from this point forward. And there's no no comment at this point from the Prime Minister about how many of these deaths have been caused by the British government's policy. 
uh, and no response to questions, no, no real response to the questions that are being asked? It's outrageous, Mike. That's the politest I can describe it as, but it's outrageous because Boris Johnson knows that his own cabinet office has been using the Behavioural Insights team to ramp up fear. Those are the documents the UK column showed to ramp up fear. And of course, the fear has stopped people going into the care system. So Boris Johnson and his government fully culpable in the deaths of people. And uh, Sky News here reporting this extraordinary fact here that uh, care homes have almost been compelled to take uh, people who have COVID-19. Official statistics show deaths in care homes made up 40.4% of the overall number of COVID-19 fatalities across England, Wales in the week to the 1st of May. And when they say almost compelled, what are they talking about? They're talking about local authorities effectively blackmailing care homes with um, threats of withdrawing financial support if they don't take the COVID uh, people. And of course, it was the Daily Mirror we reported a couple of days ago, estimating that the deaths in the care homes between seven and a half and seventeen and a half thousand and increasing. So essentially, the government knows that by locking up elderly people in a close environment and then introducing people uh, with COVID, you're going to get deaths. And we also have to say that even where they claim that the people going to the care homes for, quote, convalescence, uh, if they've been tested, the tests are notoriously unreliable. And we've had um, email reports and we have personal experience here in Plymouth that the same uh, the same thing is going on in the Plymouth area in Devon, that these COVID cases are being introduced into the lockdown environment of care homes. And that's going to kill elderly people. And the government knows and presumably doesn't care, Mike. Uh, well, that's how it appears. Anyway, now uh, let's go on with this, uh, this plan that they've got. Uh, apparently, their future uh, activities are going to be informed by the science. The government will continue to be guided by the best scientific and medical advice. Uh, OK, prove it. Uh, fairness, they say. It's going to be all very fair. It's going to be proportional. They're going to ensure all measures taken to control the virus are proportional to the risk posed. I think we're demonstrating that that has not been the case based on the mortality of non-COVID uh, infected people. Uh, privacy. Apparently, the government is going to always seek to protect personal privacy and be transparent with people when enacting measures that barring this once in a century event uh, would never normally be considered. So they're writing in this, uh, Brian, that this is a once in a century event. But of course, Bill Gates already talking about pandemic two. Uh, happening in the imminent future. So, so it, is it a once in a century event or not? Well, of course, of course. Well, we could, we could say it isn't, and it is. It isn't in, a, in as much as this is a normal winter flu virus. It's not some special foe, which uh, Johnson said in the uh, introduction. In, in the introduction. Yeah. Uh, but how is it that Mr. Gates and other people are so confident that they're going to get a repeat of this thing? And I think a lot of questions need to be asked. Uh, absolutely. Um, now, uh, of course, uh, this is what they had to say later on. The virus is unlikely to die out spontaneously, nor is it likely to be eradicated. Uh, only one human infectious disease, smallpox, has ever been eradicated. Uh, the government must therefore develop either a treatment that enables us to manage it like other serious diseases or have people acquire immunity by vaccination. 
Okay, uh, that's what they say anyway. And, but it goes on to say this will be especially challenging during the winter months, given that, given that COVID-19 shares many of the symptoms with common colds and the flu. So it's looking very like, Brian, we're going to have a pretty unpleasant time in the coming winter as uh, the arguments ensue over whether somebody has uh, symptoms caused by COVID or by something else. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the statistics, well, how reliable are those going to be? Uh, because, of course, the Office for National Statistics only publish the information that it's given. Uh, and if there's bad information coming from the National Health Service about you know, levels of COVID as opposed to the, the normal seasonal flu, uh, then um, we can, I can see how we may end up back in level four, level five of Johnson's uh, traffic light system very, very quickly. Yeah, because uh, it'll be labelled, it, one minute it's flu, but when it suits the government, it's labelled a, a special pandemic. Mm. And, and the slide that you've just had on screen, if we can pop it up again, we're now comparing COVID-19 to flu. But Boris Johnson started out by saying, no, no, this is completely different. We've never seen anything like it. Now, suddenly in this government cabinet office document, it's flu-like. Uh, well, look, <laughs> that's all true, but you don't need to worry, Brian, because uh, as the government lifts restrictions over the coming months, the public must be confident action will be taken quickly to deal with any new local spikes in infections. To achieve this, the government is establishing a new biosecurity monitoring system led by the new Joint Biosecurity Centre now being established. Um, and who have they put in charge of this? Uh, well, it's this gentleman, Tom Hurd. Uh, he is uh, the son of uh, the former Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd, uh, educated at Eton and Oxford with Boris Johnson. So he grew up with Boris Johnson. Uh, he's considered the lead candidate to take over from Sir Alex Younger when he retires from, the, uh, from MI6. Um, and so what is this man? Uh, he has uh, up until this point been the Director General of the Office for Security and Counterterrorism. Uh, and that uh, is responsible for the government's strategy, policy and legislative response to the threats of terrorism. Uh, he has extensive experience, according to the, his CV on the government website, uh, working in counterterrorism and security. He's also an expert in Middle Eastern affairs, having worked as a senior diplomat with responsibility for the region. So maybe I could uh, bring Alex onto the program at this uh, point. Alex, welcome. Um, what a... This, this guy clearly has absolutely no uh, experience whatsoever of managing a pandemic. So what is this organization that he's heading up from now on? Because it certainly doesn't seem to be about viruses. It seems to be much more about security and surveillance. If it's got the likes of Tom Hurd at its helm, that is what it will be. Uh, to take the model first, we must look beyond the personalities to the nature of the model. Uh, this seems to be very akin to the likes of the Joint Threat Assessment Centre hosted at MI5, which is a model that issues a series of numbered or colour-coded alert warnings. And it is, of course, in the inherent interest of the organisation, once established, to make sure that what level one or low level is never again reached, because that would thereby undermine the raison d'etre of the organization. So they have a business interest in keeping their product, the threat and the insecurity going. And there's a question as to what scientific disciplines are ranked in what order. You mentioned there that the, the government's approach uh, rather signally, they said that it would be led by the science. Of course, scientists often mock those who put the definite article the 
before the word science because there is no the science or to use the climate change analogy settled science that is to capture science and to turn it into a paradigm to wave in front of people's noses to justify things very quickly on the herd dynasty father and son um, tom Hurd is a very compelling case study i think in um, the ascendancy of certain elite families i don't doubt his intelligence i note that he and his father have been named as uh, former or current mi6 officers on a much questioned list by a so-called whistleblower of mi6 officers but as you point out tom heard very much is in the running to be appointed to be the next c the head of mi6 <clears throat> which does not necessarily mean these days that he has a career in the organization but he is Eton and Oxford and his father is Eton and Trinity College Cambridge. They are both very much in the elite diplomatic intelligence mindset. Heard had fluent Chinese. I heard him speak both at my boarding school and at Trinity College Cambridge uh, about his reminiscences, the, 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 the denouement of which was actually when Douglas Heard said that he spoke to a dying Chairman Mao and heard the dying Chairman Mao say in Chinese, which Heard Senior speaks, my people, my people, they will never appreciate what I did for them with my cultural revolution. There's a data point for you. Then we see um, Douglas Hurd getting through a series of key appointments in the Thatcher administration, which we don't have time to get into. But uh, we do note that at the end of that, Hurd was uh, the foreign secretary under John Major and Hurd Senior and Francis Maud, the uh, well-known common purpose kingpin of the more recent Cameron government, were the two ministers who signed the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 on behalf of the Crown and who were uh, they were, there was an attempt made to try them for treason for that, led by Ro Rodney Atkinson. Famously, at that time, someone called out to Douglas Heard, I believe, when he was leaving a building, you are a traitor and you should be tried for treason. And Heard replied, not I am guilty or I am innocent. But he replied, there's not a court in the land that would convict me. So we get some interesting ideas here. A final thing about Tom Heard is he has his, his share of tragedy. He lost his first wife to leukaemia. And his second wife uh, inexplicably fell off the roof of um, the building they lived in in the Upper East Side when they were in Manhattan. That's okay. incredible. It would be inappropriate me to uh, insert here that what the British public clearly needs is to develop herd immunity. Yes, we'll move certainly on from that. Thank you very much, Brian. <laughs> we will uh, just look at, at what is the situation then? Where does this all fit together? Well, of course, uh, we've got uh, King Mark, uh, King Mark Sedwell, who is in charge of everything. And let's just uh, look at uh, how he's in charge of everything here, because, of course, he is uh, head of the National Security Council, head of the Cabinet Office, head of the Home Civil Service, and therefore responsible for every uh, government department, uh, has been driving the whole counter-disinformation and media development uh, program at the Foreign Office, also driving the Rapid Response Unit 77 Brigade, uh, and as head of the National Security Council, uh, also effectively in charge of GCHQ, the uh, Security Service, the Secret Intelligence Service, and now also the Joint Biosecurity Centre. So, uh, Alex, this is quite a little network that he's got going here. No, it's it's a massive network. There's nothing. Uh, there's no precedent for this through the whole Cold War period. And um, you can see those uh, arrows there that you put on screen. Uh, obviously, we're doing that to show uh, you know, some degree of, of lateral or hierarchical control. But as you pointed out here, this Joint Biosecurity Center 
is effectively at that hierarchical level a fourth and new rival intelligence service. It'll probably end up like all these other recent wheezes since 9-11 being housed by one of the security services. Uh, I'll make a little stab in the wind here, shall I? I think that it will be MI6, the secret intelligence service that hosts, acts as host agency, usually across the river it's MI5 that acts as host agency for these interagency um, new style concept centers. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion, and it will uh, probably indicate a, a thing or two if I'm right about this, that it might be MI6 that hosts that one. Uh, and of course, if it is MI6 that hosts that one and he ends up becoming C, then he doesn't have to change his job role. He, he maintains his job role going forward, right? Well, this, as I think you're about to see, this is what happens in the cabinet office generally now. Um, the, it's all about the model, of course, the intellectual property and uh, uh, the replicability of it. So you start off in the public sector and then you, you spin it out to private. But that also implies within government that you can take your, your network of cronies, as Sedwell has done, from one part or two of the civil service to another. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, let's uh, have a look at uh, what's happening uh, with the economy in this uh, amazing plan that... Uh, that uh, Boris has proposed. Uh, of course, they, they were already talking about VAT deferrals until the end of June to provide a direct cash injection of over £30 billion. Pounds. Well, of course, that isn't a direct cash injection. That's merely a new debt uh, that uh, companies are having to take on because they're not having, they're not having the uh, VAT forgiven. Uh, they still have to pay it. It's just pushed uh, back to a, a, a later qu quarter. Sorry, uh, A business rates holiday worth... Uh, 11 billion to businesses. Well, okay, that is a, that is a holiday, and they do they don't have to pay that again. Uh, direct cash grants worth 10 or 25 thousand pounds for small businesses. Well, I'm not aware of anybody who's received that. If anybody has received that, anybody that owns a small business and has received that, then please do let me know that you have, because uh, I'm not seeing any evidence that any of that money's actually been distributed. The last I heard. The government was claiming a third of it had been distributed, but I haven't heard anything of it from anybody uh, having received it. Uh, a package of government-backed and guaranteed loans, which make available approximately £330 billion of guarantees. Now, of course, this is, uh, uh, this is nonsense because the government is only backing 80% of the loans. So not very much money of... Sorry, not very much of that money has been distributed up to this point. But again, we're talking debt. And then finally, the uh, furlough scheme has been extended until the end of October. Now, uh, of course, all that has done is pushed uh, the date of people losing their jobs back a little bit further. As somebody was saying to you earlier, Brian, that this or is this in the next? Is in, in the next slide okay. com coming up? A simple way of, of uh, doing it. Um, we're just showing the contrast here. What, what is the mainstream news dealing with? Well, this is sky breaking. The Department of Education has confirmed that childminders in England can care for multiple children from a single household. So this is major news. Meanwhile, it takes social media to report what's really going on, and that is that, that the economy and business is being destroyed. So this comment here on Lance Foreman, just spoken to three business people who have staff on furlough. Each said they were planning to lay them off at the end of July, but they'll now simply do it at the end of October. The furlough scheme is basically the most expensive unemployment benefit on the planet. 
and there's another one here there's there's hundreds of these uh, I need to report sorry I need to restart my business to avoid insolvency I have a plan which ensures it's done safely the problem is my furloughed staff are finding every excuse not to return to work how do I compete with a chancellor who is paying them not to work uh, well that's true I think I think uh there's maybe a little bit of unfairness in that because, of course, uh, I, just as people are not going to hospital to get medical treatment, many, many people have been pushed into a state of absolute terror and they don't want to go back to work because they don't believe they're going to be safe at work. So that's part of it as well. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm sure there's some people that are taking advantage of this purely because they don't they can't be bothered to go back to work. But nonetheless, uh, there's a lot. The, the mainstream media have a lot to answer for 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 pushing people into this state of panic. Yeah, uh, uh, but look, they're talking about uh, three hundred billion pounds uh, is what this is all going to cost the government. At the end of the day, they're still talking about today a huge recession, uh, and in fact, at the end of the first quarter, uh, the the uh, GDP had fallen by two percent. Now we're a couple of weeks behind other European countries, uh, and I think in France. Uh, and and Italy, uh, they saw 5.8% and 4.7% respectively at the end of the first quarter. So we're a little bit behind them and we haven't quite seen that those effects just yet, but it's on its way. Um, £300 billion is going to cost uh, to, to keep the furlough scheme running and all the other so-called support, which isn't really going to provide any long-term help. And the question then is, how is that 300 billion going to be paid for? They're already talking about tax rises. <clears throat> Are these going to be across the board tax rises or just for the uh, wealthier uh, tax brackets? This isn't clear yet. Uh, but, you know, as I say, we're already in a significant recession. And he, uh, Rishi Sunak, suggesting that it's going to be more than a significant recession. But in the meantime, Brian, uh, on I think it was the 4th of uh, May, uh, you were talking about... Uh, the rethinking and repurposing of government, the fact that government is uh, taking advantage of this current situation to restructure, repurpose and so on, and they address this in their plan. So we were spot on Absolutely with that report. Absolutely spot on with that yeah. report. As the government navigates towards recovery, it must ensure it learns the right lessons from this crisis and acts now to ensure that governmental structures are fit to cope with a future epidemic. But I thought this was a one in a hundred years situation. No, we're going to completely restructure everything. This will require a rapid re-engineering of the government's structures and institutions to deal with this historic emergency and also build new long-term foundations for the UK and help the rest of the world. Uh, Alex, uh, let me bring you back at this point. What are your thoughts on, on that little statement? Foundations there has got to be code for constitution, hasn't it? Uh, the foundations of the UK, I know that people are semi-literate at the heart of government these days, as they are in the rest of society, thanks to previous government policies. But the idea of new foundations should get people's blood curdling and then to tack onto it to help the rest of the world. That looks to me like a, a policy of uh, international aid continuing with Britain having its soft power hub. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, attack on the constitution, a restructuring, a repurposing, and what we're really seeing in that uh, security overview is this is this is akin to a military dictatorship which is just slowly creeping in but what are the public being told well we couldn't get anything better than our local MP um, here Johnny Mercer 
here comes Johnny, as we like to say. Uh, he's been pushing out government policy. He says that he's, it's not Westminster Voice in Plymouth, but Plymouth Voice in Westminster. But of course, what does he constantly push out? The government line. And this was the latest. So here we are, coronavirus out outbreak, frequently asked questions, what you can and can't do. And when you click the little button down here, uh, where you go straight into the sort of guidance that Mike has already been taking you through. But I was particularly interested in the subject of social um, distancing. Now, what you have on screen has actually been withdrawn, so we can't really go through this, but you get some idea of what was originally said, avoid contact with somebody originally uh, displaying the symptoms, avoid non-essential public transport work from home. So it was fairly broad brush, fairly sensible, but all that has gone and we're now into the more detailed stuff. So let's have a look at uh, what this is about. Well, you can now spend time outdoors. You can sit and enjoy fresh air. Well, I don't know why you want to do that because apparently it doesn't do you any good. Uh, exercise outdoors as often as you like, following social distancing. Now, the key thing through all this is social distancing. Um, but it's getting more draconian. So can I meet my friends and family in the park? You can meet one other person from outside your household if you're outdoors. Public gatherings of more than two people from different households are prohibited in law. This is the coercion that the British, that the Behavioural Insights team were talking about. This is the government now using direct threats. And on what date can I expand my household group? Ah, uh, now we're going to have a new concept of bubbles, which uh, we'll talk about in a bit more detail. But your household is a bubble. If it interfaces with another household, that's a multiplication of bubbles, and that will bring in certain additional rules. So what does the mainstream media say? Well, F Channel 4 here has got a, a big headline on fact-checking. This is from a couple of days ago, the evidence for social distancing. But what was not remarkable in this uh, article was there was no evidence. So we've been on the trail for this and we've been watching the um, Centre for Global Infectious Dis Disease. This is from Imperial. They concluded that suppression will minimally require a combination of social distancing of the entire population, home isolation of cases and household quarantine. Now, this is the statement being made in the early days, but this is our question. Where is the evidence for social distancing and the two meter rule? And when we start to get into it, we have to go back into the Imperial College initial reports, report nine here impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions to reduce COVID mortality. The first bit we've already covered, that's uh, the suppression. But look at what it then says. The major challenge of suppression is that this type of intensive intervention package or something equivalently effective at reducing transmission will need to be, quote, maintained until a vaccine becomes available, potentially 18 months or more. This is the constant thread. Now, in the document, there's a list of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, case isolation, quarantine, social distancing of those over 70 years of age. But we can't find anything about the social distancing. But what we do find is that two of the interventions they talk about, case isolation and voluntary home quarantine, uh, is being dealt with through the modelling 
through via Imperial. Uh, but look at what it says. The other four non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, social distancing if you're over 70, social distancing the entire population, stopping mass gatherings, closure of schools, are decisions made at the government level. So we want to know who devised the two metre social distancing rule and what medical and scientific evidence did they use to calculate it. We called Imperial College this morning. They were very nice. They were very helpful. They said, well, it wasn't us. You need to talk to Public Health England. So we've now done that and we're waiting for a, res uh, a response. But we'll just move on to this one and then I'll ask Alex if he's got any comments. But something we've noticed is that depending what you talk about over Twitter um, depends on how well your tweet does. So I'd put out here part information as to how unreliable Imperial College code was. And remarkably, although other tweets in the batch got retweeted, this particular tweet on code stood there with no retweets and no likes. Uh, so I highlighted this and I tweeted it out again. And then if you look at the bottom of the screen, it went up to the normal level of retweets that I might expect. This can't be accident. Alex, we're into covert censorship if you dare to talk about the wrong subject. Well, it sounds, Brian, like the current government policy is I'm forever growing bubbles. Uh, perhaps the only bubbles they're shrinking is the bubbles of support for your tweets. But uh, this is actually perfectly possible through uh, suppression techniques within the security and intelligence agencies and probably through private means these days from the trends we've been watching. I should quickly note in passing that uh, Jean Freeman, the Scottish National Party's uh, and Scottish government's uh, health minister, uh, formerly a leading light of Scottish student communism, um, has also had to withdraw some of her statements on guidance. There's been a famous uh, well-viewed clip about that. And I should also uh, correct what I said a moment ago. It's Douglas Heard, Mr. Heard Sr., who has lost two wives, the latter of whom died of leukemia. Tom Heard, the son, has only had the one wife who had her tragic fall in New York. OK, okay thank thanks you. for that correction. Now, we, we reported, because it is so serious, this business about the Behavioural Insights team ramping up fear, and that fear has stopped people going to hospitals. It stopped them doing a lot of things. Uh, but now what do we discover? That the Behavioural Insights team is working directly with the mainstream media. So here's, here's uh, um, the result of a search where you easily find that the Behavioural Insights team are boasting that they're working, for example, top of your screen with the Daily Mirror and Daily Express to help strangers with different views connect online and share their experience. Of What's your experience of coronavirus been like, Mike? I haven't seen it. Uh, you haven't seen it? No. no, neither have I, but we have been under house arrest. So not only is the Behavioural Insight team working uh, with the Daily Mirror and the Daily Express, they're also working with Twitter. So is Twitter independent of government? Absolutely not. And I found this remarkable because they're working with the Daily Mail now and ramping up fear. But back in 2011, the very same Daily Mail was warning of this strange nudge unit, the Behavioural Insight Team. But of course, it was only introducing a little nanny state. So what is it with the mainstream journalists? They just appear unable to grasp what's really happening around them. And that's because they're not doing any research. Mm. Enter the Lancet. And uh, we're just here 
showing you that when we start looking at this applied behavioral psychology, where do we end up? Well, we end up straight back at the World Health Organization. And of course, that's that's got the power of Bill Gates behind it. Something very nasty being carried out here. Absolutely. Um, OK, quick advertisement. If you like what we're doing, if you'd like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community where there are options to help us out there. And that would be very much appreciated. Indeed. And we're just going to pop this one up. Um, email from Australia. We know that over the last uh, a few UK column reports, we've had a truly amazing response, but somebody here saying, writing from Australia since the COVID-19 situation occurred, I've been watching the BBC each night to try and catch up on what's happening over there. We have a son living in London. Of course, we've been very concerned with the events happening. However, one thing I've noticed is something strange. The stories are long and have a quote, very propaganda feel to them. Is it just me? Uh, well, we're going to say, Gary, it's absolutely not just you. You are watching pure propaganda, especially from the BBC. But thank you for taking out a UK column subscription. Um, OK, now, speaking of social distancing and what's coming next, uh, uh, Alex, uh, I think you're being very unfair to China here. Yes, uh, possibly because the timing in Italy is before that of China. But on the left, we have Richard Reichel sharing several shots of uh, the return of Chinese primary school uh, pupils to school. And you can see that some of them are wearing welding masks with face masks under them. These are five year olds by the look of them. And on the right, you can see uh, of, the, of that left hand image, the, the right pane of that. You can see other solutions involve perspex or perspex or plexiglass edges to the desks, making it impossible to communicate or, or stretch with other desks and uh, even three-sided yellow plastic cubicles. Now that's China and uh, Mr. Reichel's entitled that welcome to the new world order. But on the right, as reported by ANSA, uh, a leading Chinese news agency in its law and education section, they're reporting that Varese, uh, an Italian commune on the border with Switzerland, is running a pilot in a particular school where, oh, sorry, a nursery actually, Asilo is a, pre, it's a, um, a kindergarten, where 150 children are wearing these bracelets. This child, of course, has got pixelated eyes, but he's wearing a mask as well. These bracelets will start bleeping and buzzing. I don't know if there's any shock or pain involved. I think not, but bleeping and buzzing if the children get within the prescribed distance of each other. I think they've set a meter or three feet for these children because everyone has different uh, distances. In some Dutch shops, it's a meter and a half. In uh, Germany, it says 1.4 or 1.6, there's no continuity. But these children, according to the director of that uh, nursery, are being told that it's a game so that they don't get frightened by the idea. And this supposedly will allow them to get back to their educational programme. And uh, at the bottom, the director notes that they're actually charging the parents uh, several dozen euros a year for the privilege of these bracelets, and they intend to spin them out if it's successful. OK, well, uh, Vanessa was pushing this out on Twitter earlier on today, uh, saying that she finds these images deeply disturbing. Children should not be deprived of sensory contact, hugs, social interaction. Uh, Denmark, Edinburgh, France, expert consensus is COVID-19 does not affect children. Why are these traumatic uh, measures necessary is what she's asking. And uh, so they're queuing up uh, to get into school, just like uh, outside the supermarket. Uh, but uh, then when it comes to playtime, 
Uh, well, it doesn't look like there's too much play uh, going on there, Brian. Terrific. Uh, and uh, and and how about uh, how about dinner? Uh, well, in fact, you know, you're not allowed to talk to your friends anymore. Yeah. So what is this doing to the minds of the it's kids? It's damaging the minds of the children. It's depressing them, and of course, the fear factor can do long-term damage, and it can do long-term damage to adults, particularly if they've got an underlying mental health problem. So the government knows this but simply doesn't care about the deaths or the mental health damage. Um, so, Alex, uh, what's the, what are the Netherlands up to? Well, it's, uh, they say in the Netherlands that Amsterdam is a law unto itself or a country of its own, and that you can see it at times like this. People should not take this as typical of the Dutch mentality, but CNN Travel is reporting that a trendy concept restaurant in Amsterdam is offering vegan-only meals uh, in these little dining booth greenhouses. Of course, the Dutch are very big on greenhouse construction. And this way you can observe your quarantining and your social distancing while still popping out of the house to eat. Um, so whether that catches on, I don't know, but uh, it has a link with the next slide in terms of uh, tongue-in-cheek concepts, which actually sell something of the New World Order, because on the next slide you can see, uh, as reported by the Italian website Domus, that a pair of German designers are uh, su suggesting these space-age helmet bubbles, the back to the bubble theme, um, as a way of circumventing uh, quarantine without having to wear a mask. Of course, there's lots of footage circulating of German policemen and supermarket security guards beating people up and arresting them for not wearing their mask. Um, then you can see that uh, yeah, the, the, the highlight there, uh, Wedding is actually um, a suburb of uh, Berlin. You can see that the, the model, the male and female, are showing how you can wear your space age helmet on the metro, how you can uh, happily sit in your, your seat uh, looking a bit like a cosmonaut, how you can get on the uh, elevators and, and walk through uh, public buildings wearing these sort of plastic events, uh, plastic uh, items, make a phone call. This obviously is very tongue in cheek here, but a gentleman's walking in with a bubble on his head trying to make a phone call, not working. By the way, the designers say that they will modify these bubbles as an alternative to masks, they will put they will fit snorkels to them optionally, or they will uh, also allow people to have different air filters. So, uh, and they will also put public broadcasting equipment in them if you need to be out on the streets protesting or addressing the public. Uh, but at the bottom of the Italian write-up, you can see that uh, it's that they're, they're making a comment on how society is changing. Often, it's the art designers who notice the absurdity and the social drive because they first because they have read their science fiction and have seen their futuristic Bauhaus design and their Corbusier architecture, and they know where it's all leading. Yeah. Uh, we'll just reinforce that because, of course, now being drifted out by mainstream media in UK to get people used to the idea of the bubble. So this is the Daily Mail headline. Britons could finally see their grandparents, family or friends or friends. Weddings could be back on under bubble socialising. Um, so we're going to be allowed to go out in bubbles, which will include one household. Um, well, but they're also kindly examining letting people gather in slightly larger groups for weddings. Um, that's if you're well behaved, of course. But this is the one that I noticed from the 1st of June. If the rate of spread of the virus, the R, the R number, is deemed low enough by scientists, households could nominate one other household and could socialise, could socialise exclusively within that large group. This is just being dragged on and on. But to come to your science statement, Alex, I'm glad to say some people really seeing through this stuff now. So we've got a horrible picture of a little girl being dosed in, in some 
unpleasant powder could well be DDT you know why they don't spray kids with DDT anymore because someone questioned settled science and then this is another one absolutely accurate that if you go into a supermarket or you go shopping that's low risk but if you go in the fresh air and sunshine high risk this is madness yeah, well, don't worry, uh, because the government's on the case and uh, Genomics England have been commissioned uh, to run a COVID-19 study uh, and they will be uh, uh, collaborating with the NHS and uh, Genomic uh, Consortium to sequence the whole genomes, genomes of people who've had COVID-19 in order to help us understand genetic susceptibility to the virus. So they're going to obviously need to get as many people involved in this as possible. So the people in ICUs uh, that are, have responded extremely badly uh, to the COVID-19 illness uh, and also people that have uh, survived it are also going to be invited to take part in this. Now, of course, uh, we don't know how many people have survived it in the UK because for some reason the UK doesn't publish that statistic. Uh, and the latest number I saw was 1,019. Uh, that it's, it's clearly a nonsense statistic. So, so uh, you know, if they can only find 1,000 people to take part in this, it's not going to be very useful. But anyway, they want to compare the genomes of people who experienced uh, very bad uh, results uh, from from having uh, been infected with COVID with those that didn't to see what they can discover about that. Indeed, and just give this as a pointer for people, what's coming, who is driving all of this agenda? Well, you've got to start coming back to organisations you might not sort of expect to be involved. The office of Gordon and Sarah Brown, Oh, they've been very busy. Uh, there's a list of names under this headline. Global leaders demand G20 task forces set up to coordinate a coronavirus response. It's about three or four pages of names. And of course, it includes such upstanding names as Tony Blair. Um, but I'm sure that Mr. Gates will be somewhere in this mix. So we need to keep digging who is creating the policy. And it's pretty easy from the headlines to see where they want to go because those glossy headlines are all about vaccines. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, George Soros is seizing the moment, Alex. George Soros has given a very remarkable in, uh, interview published just yesterday to The Independent, possibly Britain's most pro-global government newspaper, which the interviewer and the sub-editor have entitled Coronavirus Endangers Our Civilization. Of course, it's all in the question, who is our? What is that possessive pronoun? Let's see what he's been saying. Uh, if we go on to the next slide, we can see that the interviewer opens with the, the gambit. You've seen many crises. Is COVID comparable to any previous ones? Soros, no, this is the crisis of my lifetime. Even before the pandemic hit, I realised that we were in a revolutionary moment. This is before the pandemic. Well, does he have, does he have a crystal ball or is it a crystal bubble, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe one of the latter that ordered from Domos in Italy. Um, sorry, German designers featured by uh, Domos in Italy. But Soros says he realised even before the pandemic that what would be impossible or even inconceivable in normal times had become not only possible, but probably absolutely necessary. And then, of course, everyone's favourite word, disruption, comes in. It really endangers the survival of our civilization. Whose civilization would that be? More Aesopian language as we move through the piece, we see a further question. What role does the European Union, your home, in other words, he doesn't have a country as his home, he lives in the European Union. What role does the EU pair that you care about so much, O Divine George, play in this power struggle? And he replies, I'm particularly concerned about the survival of the EU 
because it is an incomplete union, so he's appropriating the language of the US Declaration, sorry, the US Constitution of 1787 in order to form a more perfect union, to move from confederation to federation. Soros says that as of 2019, the EU was in the process of being created. Well, that took a lifetime, didn't it? 60 years or, or uh, you know, at least uh, 20 if you count from the... Um, the, the most recent treaties that really uh, federalized the EU, but he says it was still in the process of being created. But the process was never completed, and that makes Europe, by which he means the EU, exceptionally vulnerable. More vulnerable than the US, says Soros, because it's an incomplete union, but also because it's based on the rule of law, i.e. the US is not in Soros's view. So he's not talking about constitutions. He's talking about the rules-based international order, uh, particularly as adjudicated by judges, I think. This is what Mr. Soros is getting at here. And do we have one more slide, I think, of uh, yes. Soros? Are we done there? Yes. Um, this comes to the point of a recent ruling uh, this week by a German federal constitutional court, uh, which the long and the short of it is that the constitutional court told the German government that it was not in a position uh, to get involved with euro bonds. And Soros says he takes this extremely seriously. It could destroy the European Union as an institution based on the rule of law. Well, the EU does not have a constitution. So again, he's talking about his judges in place, isn't he? And he says he, that the, the German constitutional court is going to find itself clashing with the European Union's own ECJ or CJEU to see which court has precedence. Well, in that he's, of course, right. But it's a three cornered hat for supremacy in judicial terms, because there is also the ECHR in Strasbourg. That's perhaps something for another day. Each of these three courts contests the validity of each other and will not exchange judges. Well, here's the Karlsruhe ruling that he was talking about, as written up by uh, unheard.com in its uh, um, subtitle called The Post or its, uh, its imprint called The Post. And the question they're asking is, has Germany just blown up the Eurozone? I know we're on the stops for time, but uh, the point they're making, Mike, is perhaps one you want to speak to, which is that um, the German Constitutional Court has said that it's the EU's own law, uh, Lisbon Treaty Article 125, which makes it impossible, uh, unlawful for the EU to issue debt instruments. Uh, but Mr. Soros's rejoinder to that, as featured in The Independent, is, well, all that the EU needs to do is to copy Napoleonic Britain or early revolutionary America and issue these consolidated bonds or consoles, the idea being they never have to be repaid and the German government will never have a constitutional problem because its share in those will remain constant which seems to satisfy the judges. What are these consoles and, and are they suitable for the EU to use as a financial instrument? Uh, well, it's like the, 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 it is the equivalent of, the, of something that most people would recognize as uh, an interest only mortgage. So you never, you never actually repay the, ca the capital that you've borrowed in the first place. You just, or, or you might consider it in the, in the, the, the same style as, as some of the uh, services that are available on, online for, for messaging or whatever, where you're just constantly tied into uh, a never ending or, you know, Netflix, for example, six pounds a month, whatever it happens to be, it never ends. Uh, this is exactly the same type of model that they're trying to roll out. They really like this subscription model where you never, ever finish paying them. Um, so this is something that, that we mentioned on this program a week or two ago that Soros was promoting in, uh, in some of the press. Very, very keen to see this, this idea pushed forward and uh, not something anybody, any nation would want to get involved in, in my opinion. But, you know, that's, uh, that's up to them, I suppose. Uh, well, look, we are pretty much out of time. So why don't we, uh, but I do want to, to, to cover this bit. We were talking about Mark Sedwell earlier and the Cabinet Office. The Cabinet Office is effectively running the government in this country at the moment. Uh, and they've decided to appoint 
some new non-executive directors. Uh, now, and before we show you who they are, uh, Brian, um, non-executive directors, this isn't really something you'd expect to see in government. This is something you'd expect to see in a corporation. Corporation or a company, a non-executive director who's brought in because of special knowledge or advice they can give the running of the company, but they don't form part of the executive. We've seen these people as business advisors to the government, but now they're being brought right in alongside the heart of government, the cabinet office. This is unbelievably dangerous. The last dangerous organisation we saw in bed with the cabinet office was, of course, the political charity Common Purpose, uh, where there were meetings that took place and the minutes were ingested in order to... Uh, deny the public clarity as to what was actually happening. So I think this is very, very serious. So they're saying that the new board members will work with civil servants and ministers across all areas of the Cabinet Office. They'll help focus on the government's priorities, including responding to the coronavirus pandemic, uh, preparing for the end of the EU exit transition period on the 31st of December this year, uh, and strengthening the integrity of the union. Now, not clear whether that's the United Kingdom union or uh, the European Union, but anyway, they just call it the Union. Uh, and so uh, who are these non-executive directors? Well, we have uh, Lord Hogan Howe of Sheffield. Now, of course, he was commissioner for the London Metropolitan Police from 2011 to 2017. Uh, prior to that, he was HM Inspector of Constabulary uh, and Chief Constable of Merseyside Police. Uh, he was elevated to the House of Lords as a crossbench peer in 2017. Uh, he's a trustee of the Arise Foundation and a patron of the St Giles Trust. Uh, then we've got uh, Baroness Finn of Swansea. Uh, she was uh, the uh, Cameron Clegg government's advisor on industrial relations and then became a special advisor to the Cabinet Office, uh, the Foreign Office and the Department for Business Innovation and Skills. Uh, she became a Tory peer in 2015. Uh, she's the co-founder of FMA Limited, which is a consultancy of some kind. Uh, and she serves on the audit committee of Arbuth Arbuthnot, Latham and Company, uh, a member of the Advisory Council to Transparency International and a trustee of the think tank Demos. Well, Demos brings you straight back to common purpose because uh, at one stage they were sharing office facilities. I think I'm correct in saying. And of course, we've shown at the highest level of the Cameron um, uh, Gus O'Donnell government uh, we had Demos links and the Young Foundation coming in. So this is the thing really now fusing. This is fusion, in my opinion. Absolutely. Mike. Alex, uh, how appropriate is it to have um, uh, what's effectively a, a policy uh, lobbying organisation right in the heart of the Cabinet Office in this way? Well, should the Cabinet Office exist is a big question through the 20th century. And then the bigger question is, what does it do? It starts off coordinating in the First World War period and ends up telling governments what to do and even being superior to the Treasury. But if you have a ministry, including the Cabinet Office, cabinet office as a central ministry, you have ministerial responsibility. You need to know whom to fire. Uh, and so the Cabinet Office Minister is supposed to carry the can for all decisions. But if you've got people with much more financial interest and clout than a Crown Minister in sitting in with that, that does not work at all. I mean, the idea of an NED, the traditional British model for an NED, is that a large corporation, uh, in fact, Nat West did this with Douglas Hurd after he was elevated to the peerage and resigned from, the, uh, from being Foreign Secretary and an MP. They will bring a, 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 a retired British politician in for a half a day a month for a fat salary, really to steer them through legislative minefields, perceptive and perceptual and uh, PR 
issues, you know, how to sell the brand. That does not fit at all with representative government, but it does, of course, with participatory democracy. Uh, absolutely. So let's move on. The third of the new uh, non-executive directories is directors is Henry Dezut, uh, and uh, tech entrepreneur is how they describe him, uh, co-founder of an organization called Look After My Bills, which is one of these compare uh, websites for, uh, for energy bills. Uh, a, a, uh, used to serve on the board of uh, 38 Degrees, the campaigning organization. So again, we've got a campaigner uh, and, and so on. Uh, but he was also a special advisor in the Department of Education. Uh, and finally, we've got the Right Honourable Gisela Stewart, uh, she, of course, Labour Member of Parliament for Birmingham, Birmingham Edge Baston from 1997 till uh, 2017. Uh, Health Minister, uh, also served on the Intelligence and Select, uh, Intelligence and Security Select Committee. Uh, so uh, this is quite a, quite a little batch they've got uh, brought in there, Alex. Uh, just some final thoughts on that. Uh, if you look at the skill sets that they have there, it does seem to be managing public views, doesn't it? So uh, is the Cabinet Office, what, what is the golden egg that's, that, that the Cabinet Office lays? Is it that it has the ability through being a shell of government to put um, tests in place, pilot schemes such as behavioural uh, insights? Is it that you bring these corporate people in and they say, we would like to know how to get the public to think X or do Y or refrain from Z. And once that model's been perfected, Cabinet Office PLC, as it were, Cabinet Office Inc. will take over and spin out the model, perhaps for more pecuniary considerations. I think that's probably what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, whatever it is, it's, um, my opinion, not constitutional and people have got to root it out. Absolutely. We'll Where do we go there. from? Well, we'll end the news at this point because we've run on. We've got a, a few more subjects. We'll hold those in reserve. Are we going to manage a film? I think we might do oh, it to play out. I see. So yes, right. I'm going to say a big thank you to everybody who supported the UK column. Huge amount of appreciation for our exposure on the fear factor of the Behavioural Insights team. Many people clearly understanding what that was about. Thank you for all the emails of support we've had. Thank you for the donations we've had. And also a big thank, thank you to our American audience, which we understand really picked up on some of the things we've been talking about. So we can only do it with your help. Thank you very much. And we're going to play out with a little film clip, uh, which we think is very pertinent to uh, what is happening around us in this madness, this contrived madness of COVID-19. Thank you.
must stay home. Only be outside for food, for health reasons, for exercise, or if you're an essential key worker.